I am Lucas Mack, and I'm on a mission to see the hurting get healed and the healed go out and heal others in order for all of us to experience the true love and light we desire. This podcast is me sharing my journey with you so you don't feel alone in your journey. Welcome to the Golden Rule Revolution. Hello, my brothers and sisters, and welcome back to another episode of the Golden Rule Revolution. I am Lucas Mack, and thank you for joining. Today, I'm so excited. I have mentioned this man many times on the podcast. It is my friend, Rabbi Shmuel Brody. He's a Hasidic Orthodox rabbi, one of the most spiritually connected divine human beings and beautiful souls I have ever met. And he walked with me through a very difficult time. I started learning with him every week, studying and learning, studying and learning for many years. And um, he's just an incredible soul. He's a gift to this world. Um, and I'm excited to introduce him to you. So thank you for listening and enjoy. I'm excited. So let's, uh, let's get rolling. So everyone, you've heard me talk about Rabbi Brody. I don't know how many times on this podcast, and I'm excited to bring him to all of you today. Rabbi, how are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here with you and all your friends. I, I'm so, uh, I'm so excited. You know, when I, when we met it, I was go, I was just about to go through the darkest time of my life and, and studying and learning with you every week. And I, I really credit it to why I'm here today and help me find what I've always been looking for. And so thank you again for all the time and all the learning together and, and your friendship. It's been incredible. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, you know, for me as well, um, that was, that was very remarkable for me to meet you and to be there. And, you know, earlier in my life, I had the people that were there at exactly the right times um, to share with me, to lift me, to take me um, to the next place I would have to go. Without those people, you know, at that point in the journey, um, also, I would say I would not, you know, become, you know, the person I needed to become. Hmm. Well, it's, I'm glad you are. I'm glad those people invested in you so I could receive the blessing of you investing in me. Do you mind sharing for, I think, you know, the, the, even just the position of rabbi, if people are not in the Jewish community, don't really understand what it, what it takes to be a rabbi, the learn, the amount of learning and studying. Um, so can you share just what your journey has been? I know you, come from a family with, with that lineage, but just where your, your journey has been. Well, um, I would say that, you know, really being a rabbi, um, it, it's really just a, um, a dedication of learning, which is, which is something that is um, hallmark of the Jewish people. Mm. We are so fascinated and I would say obsessed with, um, with learning, because learning means growing. Every new idea is, um, is a new insight, is a new perception, is a new experience. Mm -hmm. um, all of that is really fused into one. 
And that's something that is, you know, particular to the Jewish people. And so I'm not very different than any other person growing up in that tradition, in that we take that study very seriously. And, um, and hopefully we really enjoy it more and more. We find the areas that I really speak to us and, um, and, we, and we dedicate ourselves to it and study. Hmm. When, when did you, was there a point where you decided to be a rabbi? Was that an expectation growing up in your, your household? Like what, when did it become personal for you? Um, no, as I said, it, it, it was really a matter of, you know, being part of a culture of learning. Mm. Um, you know, we, we study with our children, you know, all the time, not just like on, on Passover, but all the time. And in, if adults were able to uh, generate the interest because we ourselves, ourselves are passionate about it, and our children also become passionate about it. And if we could speak to their language and interest them, then it becomes, you know, something that we, we, we jointly share together. So um, much less than a, a position or even a career, it's just the outgrowth of getting more attached to study. Mm. There is so much, I mean, I love, you You know, I love studying. I love learning all the, there's so much brilliance and, and you could, we could read, someone could read the same thing a hundred times and get a hundred different perspectives on it. And there's always more and deeper, deeper learning. Is that, you know, in Judaism, obviously, you, I mean, you know, there's, there's Orthodox, which still can keep some more of that more tradition and culture versus the age of like cultivating that fire in the Hasidic path. Like what, what is keeping the younger generation? Like you lead, I look at you as a younger, you're a younger (laughs) rabbi and then your children, like when did you cultivate that age, that fire inside of you? Yeah, that's a very, it's a really important question. Yeah. Um, I think the, in the age of maturity, you know, in your in later teenage years when you're developing as a person, so you take what you absorbed, which is just, you know, your, how you, you were raised, how you grew up, and you start to um, want to, you know, personalize it and make a you know, personal connection with it. It's at that point where hopefully people will turn and ask the question, you know, what's my connection to this, you know? How do I find the passion um, in this? So, for example, the Hasidic path, the context of it is in the traditional path, what people call orthodox, but I would just call the the, the tradition of of the Jewish people, Mm. Um, except it has a very particular path uh, within that, which is um, study of the Hasidic teachings which do create that ash, that fire. Yes. Ideas that are really not just cerebral. They really um, impact and fuse with the person's emotions yes. and ignite, they ignite the emotions so that person can find that, wow, you can actually feel feelings for God. Yes. Like, wow, I thought I just felt feelings for myself or, you know, things I enjoy or people I enjoy. But no, actually, uh, we can we could find that these emotions can be ignited uh, toward God. So um, in those later years, you know, later teenage years, 18, 19, when you're kind of finding yourself, 
hopefully the person starts to turn th- their question um, in, a, in a spiritual way as well. It's uh it's incredible the the feeling like being being at the shul where people are even learning together even if it's in quiet space it's still there's this i don't know pulling or drawing people closer to to god to hashem and you know we so hashem is commonly used for the name of god but explain to people like why what why this is important to say Hashem, where that derives from? Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, you know, you first you know you're describing the shul, and you know, the Jewish people are primarily a people because of the Torah. Mm. Um, that relationship that we have to God through the Torah, that is not bound by any particular place, and that's why we've remained in a, a very uh, people. Um, mysteriously um, and almost unexplainably uh, wherever we've gone and under circumstances that are really not to be believed if you study the history in the particular. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the place that we call the shul is, is a remarkable place, as you say. You know, there is something, we describe it in the Talmud as a small temple. Mm-hmm. And um, if in the temple there was a pervasive sense of God that was really palpable that we call the Shechina, the divine presence. Every person, no matter your spiritual place, had contact and can sense that um, from people that were really not usually connected to that to people that were intimately and constantly connected to that. Mm-hmm. And in a small way, the shul has that. A shul, which dedicates itself toward service. When you walk in there, like as you say, whether you're by yourself there's that pervasive presence. And certainly when you're with people like-minded, nice. just people are studying or, or definitely praying, you, you can feel sort of the, uh, the vibrancy of the energy there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, the name of God, we call Hashem the name because of the, the reverence we have uh, for the actual name of God. Mm. And the actual name of God essentially is, um, is, um, an experience of God as a name is descriptive of something. A name of God is something that uh, a descriptive experience of how God is manifest to us. So we call it this name or that name or this name means if you can name something, it means that you could, you get it well enough. You can call it something mm. and God is unknowable and ineffable yeah. uh, at the same time. Uh, God makes himself relatable and knowable. And that's why we have a name. It's beautiful that, um, you know, Rabbi uh, Ari Kaplan, he wrote this book. I, I Brian got my brother-in-law got, gave it to me years ago. And he has this great line in this book. He says, it is right to say to the atheist, the same God you don't believe in. I don't believe in either <laughs> because whatever construct you have of God, that is not God. God is like you said, ineffable is, but that's such a also beautiful thing to say is he makes himself relatable in these attributes that we can know as much as we want to, to find or seek. Yes. So one of the coolest things I've, and I have incorporated it into the men's retreats that I lead is a silent hike. 
That's the first time I've ever been with another person with you where there's no talking and just a meditative walk. And I remember the first time like, I was like, my mind was everywhere. <laughs> I was like worried about the car. It was, you know, it was dark. And, and then there was just this point where I settled in and I had such a profound, deep experience of being present to being aware of all that is and being with you is so beautiful. When, where did you learn that practice? So, you know, I think this is one of the, you know, I guess trickiest things and maybe one of the biggest doors that is placed in front of people when it comes to a spiritual or religious experience. Um, it's, on the one hand, we come with a very deep tradition. And that tradition is very, informs us of so much. I mean, when we study, we don't start with our own ideas. We mine the text, but with the humility that great people were able to discern things in between the words. Mm. And so we, we study that. At the same time, every person has a soul. Mm. And the soul is a means for a person to be able to connect to the divine in a similar way that, you know, our, our different senses allow us to connect to the things that we sense in the physical world. And we honor that. So, you know, there is a, um, there is a, uh, um, I, guess, I guess, trial and error. A person has to kind of just try and experience different things. Mm. You know, open yourself up to different possibilities. And I would say among the Hasidim, if you go to the, to the, the Hasidic traditions, um, you, you step into that world. Um, and it may not be, you know, the 1800s in Europe any longer, but they have maintained that um, to a degree. And when you step into that world, you experience things that you've never experienced before. Mm. And when you experience them as a community, all of a sudden as an individual, you can now uh, find those things within yourself. But those experiences weren't available to you just walking down the street, going to the dry cleaners, you know, going into your office. The normal consciousness and things that we think about that doesn't become available to us. But when we step back into that world, people are doing that, studying that, experiencing that together as a community, all of a sudden you can find it for yourself. So in a similar way with silence, you know, silence, you know, um, as the Psalms say, to you, silence is praise. Mm. Um, one of the interpretations is by, by being silent, we can find the praise of God. We could, you know, discover things within ourselves. Mm. Um, so I would say, yeah, among the Hasidim, particularly on Shabbos, the third meal, um, that was something I, I learned. It's powerful. It's powerful. Really. It's one of the coolest things is, and especially silence with another person. It's, I mean, how many times, I don't know. I had never done that just to be, I've been silent with myself. I've been in the woods. I've been on hikes, but to be with another person and to not, to let go of what another person is thinking of. I mean, that was a big, thing for me is it doesn't matter what you think of me in that moment. It's just coming back into that. We're both here in this moment. And it was so powerful. Rabbi, it was, it was it's powerful. And then when I lead these men's retreats, I tell the guys, they don't know what's about that. I don't let them know what happens throughout the retreat. Cause I want them to experience it and have a visceral reaction to whatever's coming. And I said, all right, guys, 
we're going to go on a hike, but here's the rules. Literally, no one can say a word. Do not say a word. Do not utter a peep. And I said, even if people will come by you and say, hi, you can acknowledge them with your eyes, but keep walking. And it is the cool, when they come back from the hike and they talk about the same process almost that I had, like worrying about everything else. And then boom, something happens and they, it's a deep knowing of themselves and where they are in relation to everything else. So it's, it's really beautiful practice. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the things that you said to me in, in the spiritual world, you know, the non-Jewish spiritual world, people throw the word Kabbalah out a lot and it became popularized, I think by Hollywood and a lot of that stuff. But you, you said something to me one time, and I think it's one of the teachings that, you don't go to, you don't, you don't get the, the Kabbalah books until you've really learned grounded on Torah itself. Do you remember sharing that or is that, that practice? Can you explain that? Because I think that's really important to be grounded in, in Torah before you play with fires, you know, spiritually speaking. Yeah. Um, I think that there, yeah, there is a lure um, of the Kabbalah, and there's probably something beneficial of just about that lure. That 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 means that there's promise, mm. um, and people want to come in contact with something that's different. Sometimes it's not healthy because people think of it as in a magical way or in a healing way. Um, that may represent the unhealthy, but the healthy is that, th- that there's something that's sort of on the edge of our our consciousness that we have a sense that there's something beyond wherever we're at mm. and we're kind of, and we're grasping for that. Mm. And so, you know, like every, in every tradition, you have to, you know, build things um, gradually or in, every, in any science or anything you study, you have to build things gradually to really have a healthy and proper relationship with it. Well, it's a similar thing um, in the study and practice of spirituality. Mm. Um, Hasidus, would represent the core ideas of the Kabbalah as they're expressed um, in um, in the human experience that is accessible. Hmm. So if people are kind of reaching for that, I would say the, the address to that is the Hasidic teachings, hmm. uh, which are very appropriate for any beginner yeah. to, to start with. Powerful. What... Um... Like what, uh, I don't know, there's so many questions I want to ask you. And usually I don't do like straight interview questions like this, but I just said, I, you, I could ask you a million questions. And I think it's so fascinating for people to get the opportunity to, to hear from you and to learn, you know, more about a world that many don't, they're not familiar with and never get the opportunity to hear about. Um, when, so for instance, like Lauren grew up reform where, what there is a movement though, this, I, I see this like with Brian and Brian's friends, like this calling back, coming back to this real powerful relationship with Torah and relationship with the divine again. And what are you seeing in the, in the Jewish community? And I think is also reflected in the world at large. Yeah. Within the Jewish community, 
there has certainly been a, a lot of momentum toward the spiritual uh, teachings. There's a richness that people look for in all traditions, and certainly Jewish people, that is, uh, they're looking for something very connective. Mm. And um, you know what it is when you meet it, you know, in a similar way that people don't want to be alone, you know, mm. nobody needs to be alone in the world. Um, and how rich it is to share life with someone. Um, in a similar way, maybe even greater, um, people don't want to experience that loneliness. Mm. And when you have that contact, um, you know, whether it's through saying the Psalms or through praying or through study, um, you know what it is. You've met something. Mm. And that something is so, um, so real. Um, and when you contrast that to other parts of your life, it's, it, it demands, it calls for you to pay attention to it. You cannot not pay attention to it. It's, mm. it, it's too true of an experience and too filling of what uh, a person's looking for that it, it calls to you. And that we are seeing uh, within the observant world and also in people that, that are not. When you make contact with that, you, you, you need to pay attention. Mm. Yeah, you can't forget it. There, I think I've shared this with you. I say this quote often, but this old preacher said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And once you experience it, once you have that encounter, that's everything. And that's why I think it's so powerful the Hasidic path is just I feel it um so one of the things that's coming up that there's the there's the um, the different holidays in the Jewish um Jewish religion we have Pesach coming up Passover but we just had Purim and can you explain the difference between Torah holidays and then the rabbinic holidays or the more uh, the other traditional holidays because i find this really fascinating well you know really the holidays of the torah are described as three times a year you will come see my face hmm. so even though each holiday has its own regiment of, of offerings that the torah speaks about and some mitzvahs primarily it's identified as three times a year will come to see my face. Mm. And that is very telling of what it is, which means that there are three opportunities or times in the year that when you're going to get a um, exposure or an encounter that you will not get other times of the year, which means that what we call Zman time itself affords that that's without, you know, you really doing so much the time itself provides it. It's similar to the Shabbos. When the seventh day comes around, you enter into a certain space that the space itself um, provided by the time is providing a certain uh, sense, a certain experience. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Yom Tov or the holidays uh, are about. Each one's got his own particular emphasis. The sages added uh, two holidays and in a similar way, they, they, they do that type of thing, not to the same uh, degree, um, but in a similar way, um, they do that, uh, Purim and, and Hanukkah. Mm. So the, the, the holidays, there's always a return or re, th that's been, um, what is, uh, what is return again? What's the word in Hebrew? It's, uh, 
You mean teshuva? Yeah, teshuva. Yes. So we always have uh, uh, bechira is choice, right? Or how do you say choice? Bechira. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we always have a choice under the law of free will to return back to that the essence of who we really are, who we truly are. And one of the beautiful things talking about the soul and the neshama and the breath of God and like coming back to just being present in our breath is so incredible. And and the Yom Tovs are a great time to be present and to remember the gifts that we have. So as we enter the season of Pesach, can you explain that story to Maybe no one to someone who's never heard it before. What is the story of Pesach and the the great power that comes from that? Yeah, this is really the story of um, you know the making of a people, um, and that's you know pretty interesting. You know how, how a people um, is made. Um, it's the story of um, of explicitly showing and. Um, Revealing uh, God's his, Himself, mm. um, and as a result of that, He's uh, taking for Himself a people, and and so the both the the peopleheart of the Jewish people came into being on Pesach, and um, and with that, you know, some dramatic choices of you know leaving behind uh, the land of Egypt. You know, any any time a person leaves something behind, um, that's really um, painful, there's also a certain comfort they're leaving behind. Mm. So on the one end, everyone's like, well, that's obvious. You know, you leave something painful. On the other end, it's not because everything that's painful is also something that we're comfortable with. And we're going into something that's really unknown and we're losing the attachment, the security in a sense, as strange as it is, as the painful environment. Yeah. So leaving Egypt um, as a people was very difficult. And you'll see throughout the Torah, the people come, come back to it again and again. You know, we remember this. Why did you take us out to Egypt to be, to be killed? Do you remember when we were in Egypt this? Right. The people on hand were not so happy with Moshe about leaving Egypt. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, you were enslaved. It was, it was a holocaust of, uh, in Egypt. Yeah. Um, but it's, you can see it's really not easy. And the personal experience, everyone knows that. When you leave something, um, you know, take an addiction, people leave an addiction, you know, the addiction is really killing them, but it doesn't make a difference. The addiction, so there's a certain amount of comfort that makes it very difficult to leave. Mm. So Pesach is about leaving um, difficult circumstances that take it a certain amount of courage um, to, to, to depart from as well. Wow. And with with the remembering, what is recalling and telling that story? Like, you know, we'll, we, we will tell the story with our kids. We'll do a, a Seder. Um, but what is what is remembering? What's the power in being reminded? Because I think that's that's a huge key to this. Yeah, that's a good, great question. You know, really, when we talk about remembering, um, we actually mean forgetting. Like when we say, oh, yeah, I remember what we actually mean is we've forgotten until this very moment. Mm. That's not really remembering. Remembering really means to be always conscious of something. Now, that's pretty difficult. Right. But that's really what it means to remember. Zechira in Hebrew 
um, is to be conscious of something always that's always in your memory, mm. always there. So, for example, the leaving of Egypt is so central, so significant to the Jewish people. It's something that we're always supposed to be connected to. However, one day of the year, one night of the year, we're supposed to be really, really connected to that. Well, we actually undergo the experience of it. And that really requires every person um, to really close their eyes and to, and to be there, you know, to, to say the words, you know, to say the words, to sink themselves into the words, to, um, to reconnect with something that is really timeless. Hmm. It's um, Moshe is such a, I mean, he's, how would you describe Moshe as like um, in perspective to the faith? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, well, you know, Moshe of course is the, um, is the, um, the giver of the Torah. He's the one that the Torah passes through. And um, it's because of uh, our knowledge that Moshe is a true prophet that we accept the Torah as being something that is truthful. <clears throat> Moshe, um, as a person, that's like, you know, that's like the impossible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to be replicated. <laughs> that's the impossible. That's like living the, that's like the impossible. That's, um mm. You know, that, that's really, it's like, I'd, it's like not something I'd, I'd ever want to be mm. um, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's like something that you, you do want to be, you know, like the position is impossible, yeah. but, the, um, but the, the, the place he reached, the, the, the person he was is, um, is, uh, is everything. So, you know, Moshe is the way through how Torah is transmitted to us. Every, the most common verse in the Torah is God spoke to Moshe saying, it all, it all, it comes, it comes through Moshe. So whenever we study Torah, we're going back to the ones that really transmit it. And that's Moshe. And I have uh, the Mishnah Torah here, one of the seders, and we were going through that. And that is, an amazing commentary. So can you explain there's the Torah, there's the Mishnah Torah and how, and even the word Talmud gets thrown around. I think in people like, Oh yeah, Jewish people study the Talmud, but the Talmud commentary upon commentary of the Torah, right? Yeah. Look, the Torah is a, is a multi-layered document. When you look at it, you know, you, all you have is the words, you know, let's say the Bible, um, but you know, what's there, you know, what lies, you know, beneath it, both in terms of study as well as in the experience of it so much. So all these words are the layered explanations, the layered teachings of what is meant in the utterance of God. So that one word, um, it, there's so much within it. There's so much in terms of the experience of the word, you know, what it is to its meanings. You know, for example, Nachmanides says that the Torah in its totality is just names of God. Hmm. So on the one hand, it's, like, it's the most mystical thing. It's just, it's just, to- it's all the names of God. On the other hand, it's got very particular and very precise um, meaning in terms of what the mitzvah is, how one does it, how one lives it. 
So in between, you know, that, names of God, and then in between the particular mitzvah, is this whole, you know, multi-layers of, uh, of Torah. So the Mishnah Torah, the Talmud, these are all sections of what we would call the, the oral Torah, which is simply how this Torah is understood, how, how it's explained. And that comes transmitted down through a transmission from the prophets to the sages, um, to their own um, explanations based on um, ways of expounding it, mm. of how we sort of mine the Torah to bring out all its you know various teachings. Awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so with Pesach coming up, um, the Passover, one of the beautiful things about Passover is it's done the exact same way in every Jewish home around the world. And it's been that way since how long? I mean, since Moshe, since the actual Passover. Yes, yeah, since 2448 from creation and the Torah said you should, you know, keep this um, and every spring you should do these, you should do these, uh, these practices. And when your children will ask you, you know, what are you doing? You'll respond and say, because God took us out of Egypt. So we've got the, uh, the source of it right there um, in the Torah um, in Exodus, in Exodus 12. It's amazing. What do you think? I was, um, I don't know if I've ever asked you this or we ever learned this together. So Daniel has the prophecy um, of the statue, the head of gold, the, the chest of bronze, the legs of, or the waist of maybe iron and then the feet of iron and clay. And I always looked at those as the four uh, kingdoms that basically persecuted the Jewish people. And then the, the Mashiach comes and destroys that that um that idol or that statue but where i've always wondered why isn't egypt mentioned in that was it because it had already happened essentially the and those were the kingdoms of present to future i always wonder why egypt wasn't included in that concept that's a that's a great question um actually you know that prophecy of the four kingdoms is throughout the the Torah, the prophets, and the scripture, um, many, many forms. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah has it, as well as Daniel, and scattered in many places. But the the first, well, on the first place, one of the earliest places is when God foretold to Abraham the, uh, the, the impending bondage and exodus of Egypt. And laden within that prophecy, the sages um, derive the four these four exiles contained in the dark, the, um, the darkness that Abraham experienced. Um, and behold, a terrible, dreadful darkness fell over him as being um, indicative of these four exiles. So actually, they're all contained within Egypt. Egypt, in a sense, is the mother of all exiles. When, when everything is sort of off and everything is, is wrong um, or out of place, finds its source um, in Egypt. Hmm. That's, why, that's amazing. And then the age of Mashiach, that's the, what the final, that is the age where the big return happens and everyone returns. 
I was talking to someone the other day that there's all these different prophecies of these different religions of the world that all kind of correspond around the same time The we, we just entered the age of Aquarius astro um, astronomically. There's the prophecy of the golden age. Christianity has the millennial reign of Christ that these thousand year time period on the earth where the lion lays with the lamb, that there is no more suffering, that there is this beauty what in Torah, in the Torah, Talmud, or the teachings, like what, what precedes or what, when does the age of Mashiach come in Judaism? Or is that a focal point or, cause there is a eight or yeah. What is the age of Mashiach perhaps maybe start with that. Well, you know, there is a era uh, called the Yemos HaMashiach, the, the days of Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's identified um, as an era. Um <sighs> Well, it's one of those nebulous, uh, those nebulous things. Yeah. Um, you know, Daniel himself was told to, you know, conceal the prophecy in the book, um, a time, a time and half a time. And he was told deliberately to make it confusing, which tells us that um, it's not supposed to be a focal point the particular mm-hmm. time, but it is replete, as you say, throughout the prophets a, a call of a, a great return that uh, that will happen, that will come. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we have spent less time focusing on the particulars of the age, but but very worthwhile to, to see these prophecies in the actual scripture, to, to see them as they are said to, to, uh, to unfold. Yeah. And which is also so important to... Ha- to- um, what is the word when we, we cling on or attach? What is the word for attachment? Vecos. Yeah, vacos. So like the more we cultivate and and attach ourselves to Hashem in this time, when that time comes, whether we're alive or not alive, if we happen to be alive, what a beautiful thing that we are attached greatly to that and can step into that age like, hey, oh, I'm already here. You know, I'm already doing what needs to be done. Um, yeah, there's a great story with uh, one of the great Hasidic masters. Um, I believe of Mendel of Vitebsk, who was told that uh, the Messiah had come. And he took his head and he uh, leaned out the window and smelled the air. And he said, no, he has not yet come. And... Um, and they say, well, why he had to take his head and go out the window to smell the air, to discern if Mashiach had come or not, because in his own atmosphere, the Mashiach had come. Mm. In his own personal space, the, the wholeness, the completion of what the Mashiach was supposed to bring was happening within his, his area, his own self, his family, his, his base Hamedrash. Mm. That was already, uh, had arrived at that time. That's powerful. That's beautiful. Um, you do one. I mean, I learned so much from you and, and learning and you're also coaching individuals and life coach, you're certified life coach. Talk about that process too. Like what people are getting from having that accountability and having someone to speak into their life and, and help them navigate from where they are to where they want to go. 
Yeah, you know, I, as I see, um, many people when they hit their late 20s or middle 30s, um, things that they were able to ignore, they could no longer ignore. Um, and I see this time and time again. Um, so often it's the pain of childhood um, to varying degrees from significant trauma to, to less. Uh, these are experiences usually with a father or a mother um, that they were able to ignore up to a certain point, but now they can no longer ignore, ignore it. And it's, make, it's definitely making a difference. They, they're finding some, some pain and this manifests in different ways, um, whether it's in a relationship with their, ch- their own children um, or their work um, or their spouse, they've come out to a point where they can no longer ignore it. And that is mostly the type of work that, um, that I'm doing with people. Mm. It's powerful. You know, I was thinking, remember I, I'd be sick a lot. I'd have to cancel our learnings cause I wasn't feeling well. All that was a byproduct of the trauma that I was not, cause I haven't been sick. I mean, I can't even remember last time I was sick, let alone consistently, like every <laughs> almost daily waking up. And, and it's been beautiful that the more emotional healing that we bring forth, the physical healing manifests from that. And there's so much to what you're doing because you're hel- helping those people. It's not just emotions, but our bodies are just mirrors to, I think, what are, where our soul's health is inside of us. Yes, precisely. You know, many people are experiencing um, this type of um, body pain, uh, backaches, um, a lot of anxiety and feelings in the chest. And that just indicates to us that those, these are emotions that have not been dealt with mm-hmm. directly and have just have gone into the body. And that's where, that's where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing like, you know, you know, working that through. There's nothing like working that process through to, uh, to, to come to liberation. Pesa. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so I'm going to put your contact info in the show notes so people can reach out to you and, and uh, hopefully hire you as a coach and, and speak into their lives as you spoke into mine, which is so beautiful. But before, before we wrap, have you had Hava whiskey yet? <laughs> Do you know that Nassim came out with his own whiskey? Uh, <laughs> called Hava and I just ordered a couple bottles so, <laughs> when that comes you and I can have a lime with a little Hava <laughs> yeah I'd love to I'd love to I'd love to taste that and if, for everyone listening if you haven't heard of Nassim Black search him on YouTube or any music uh, channel and Nassim is a beautiful black brother from Seattle who converted to Orthodox Judaism or converted to Judaism and has gone down the Hasidic path. And, and what an incredible, and Rabbi Brody, you, you had that opportunity to walk with him during that. What was that like for you? And and to see, especially who he's become this kind of unique icon in the whole, in Israel. It was really, really awesome. Both Nisim and his brother-in-law, um, Yosef. you know, yeah. Yosef, yeah. Um, the type of sincerity, um, the type of energy that they would bring to the synagogue, you know, yeah. um, was awesome. You know, the prayers were just totally aflame from the two of them and people that were there. Um, 
and that's it's 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 really awesome. And then to deal be able to to go through that, and then to be, you know, to be a mentor as he is to other people, that is, uh, I think that's great. That's you know, kind of like how we began. You know, you know, I was there for you. Others were there for me. Yes. Well, he's others were there for him. He's now uh, there for others. Mm. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I love you and I'm so thankful for you and, and thanks for coming on the podcast and just sharing and I just, every, just <sighs> blessings upon blessings. That's it. Thank you, Lucas. I love you too. And, um, and you're a big blessing to your, uh, to your audience, you know, to have that um, radiant presence really gives, um, you know, lifts people up. You know, and and you know who knows where where a person is and and what and what they need, you know, and what and what that gives them. It's it, it is uh it is so got such value. Mm, thanks, thanks, Rabbi. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that podcast, Rabbi Brody. Thank you so much again for coming on, and everyone, thank you. I hope my desire is that you are detaching. If you're feeling low vibrations, you're standing in your own power, you're releasing fear, you're speaking affirmations over yourself. You are receiving the infinite and unconditional love that is available for you right now, right here. The darkness lost. The darkness lost. Just know that. Repeat it. Light wins. Perfect love casts out all fear. God wins. We are on the side of light and love. And that is the greatest truth and greatest gift that we could have ever received. So everyone, thank you so much. I bless you all. I will talk to you on the next episode. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for listening. For support in your journey, go to my website, lucasmack.com.